0: We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening.
1: Now, I hope you've had a chance to follow along in our Advent devotional. We did produce an Advent devotional that goes along with our Christmas series. And if you haven't had a chance yet, you're going to be able to pick one up at the end of this gathering. Physically, if you're in the room, you can pick one up in the lobby. If not, if you're online with us, then you can pick it up. I think they'll have a downloadable copy for you, and you can get a digital copy for that. But if you have been having a chance to read along with us, um, you will notice that there was a theme for this week's readings. And it was actually on waiting. Now, all of us have found ourselves in seasons of waiting. I remember waiting for our first child to be born. Now, we had waited nine months for that day to meet her. And I remember nervously waiting for the unknowns of labor that were about to come my way. And then on that day when I knew that she was coming, I remember waiting at home waiting to go to the hospital. Those hours, they felt like an eternity. Anyone who's ever given birth, you can understand that. It was a long time to wait. And so finally, when the time had arrived, Skip and I went to go load into our car. And we owned a Jetta at the time. If you've ever seen a Jetta, a Jetta is a very small car. And so the night before, Skip had actually gone outside because we knew that she was going to be born the next day. And he had installed the car seat. Now, We were new parents. We had absolutely no idea what we were doing, what we were getting ourselves into. So we had taken out the manual. We had put it in there. He had, like, secured the straps. He was pretty convinced that it was good to go. And so he came inside. He said, yep, we're good to go. We can, whenever, whenever. And so we started waiting to get to the hospital. Well, eight hours later, I announced that it was time to head to the hospital. And so we loaded into that very little car. The problem was that we have waited a bit too long to leave our house. And I was about ready to have that baby, which meant that I was past the point of my calm, zen-like part of my contractions, and I was more at the I'm going to kill Skip part of our journey. And so we get into the car, I'm already very upset at Skip and the situation that we now find ourselves in, and I settle into the car, get the car seat on, I'm in a lot of pain, and I look over at Skip Who is pinned against the steering wheel in the seat like this? Because when he had gone to install the car seat the night before, he had pushed the car seat, the the driver's seat forward, he had installed that car seat, and then he had come inside the house. But when he went to go sit in the seat, when we're ready to go to the hospital, what he noticed was there was no room. And so he's trying to push the car, the seat back so that he can drive the car. But the car seat is so big, and we didn't know this. And so somehow he figures out a way to slide himself in. He's like this, and I'm like, let's go. And so we're halfway down the road when Skip stops the car. Now, at this point, I'm yelling at him. I'm saying, you're going to go through all the stop signs. I don't care. No stoplights. Just go. We have to get there. And he looks at me as he stopped the car with panic in his eyes. And he says, I can't drive like this. Well, you can imagine that I'm about ready to kill him. As he puts that car into park, as he gets out of the car, as he goes to the back seat, as he tries to fumble to try and get the car seat out. If you're a parent you understand this, there's like clips you have to pull and like things you have to do, all sorts of things to get that car seat out. He can't figure it out. So finally he just unclips the seatbelt, whatever thing, throws the car seat he had so lovingly placed in the car only eight hours earlier, jumps back into the driver's seat and gets me to the hospital so that we do not have Kennedy in the car. Now, looking back, I realize that it only took a few minutes in that moment. But in that moment, it felt like the longest waiting season of my entire life. And I wonder if you're a bit like me. See, I'm not a patient person by nature. My husband will tell you this. Waiting does not come naturally to me. The thought of waiting for something will instantly irritate me. Now, waiting seasons can often bring uncertainty. They can bring pain. They can bring longing. Sometimes they even bring heartbreak. The waiting time seems a bit excessive at times, even slightly unbearable. Waiting for bad news that you know is on its way. The slow journey of waiting for a loved one to take their final breaths here on this earth. What about waiting for the miracle that you've been praying for for years. Maybe waiting in silence for an answer that really doesn't seem to be coming. Waiting can tend to lead towards weariness, can it? But the truth is that waiting also has a great purpose in our lives. Christmas is a beautiful example of that in those weeks that lead up December, to December 25th that we are in right now. Growing up, do you remember the excitement of waiting for Christmas morning to finally arrive? The anticipation of that overwhelming joy that you might get as you open up a present that you had been waiting for for months. What about waiting for the first snowfall as a kid to run outside and jump into that snowbank and have so much fun? What about the joy of being reunited with a friend or family that you haven't seen in such a long time and that you anticipate you'll see over the Christmas season? You see, on one hand, December can be a great season of waiting and excitement. But on the other hand, December can be exhausting. It can be a weary time, especially if you're going through a season of uncertainty, loss, or grief. I think that's why I've always loved Advent so much. Because Advent is traditionally a time to prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas, but it's also a time to reflect on the reality that things aren't quite what they should be. See, Advent slows us down in the busiest season of our entire calendar so that we can reflect on why we celebrate Jesus. There's a waiting that comes with Advent, a longing that should settle in our hearts a little bit, that Jesus didn't just come to the world to be placed in a manger, but Jesus arrived in a manger so that he could journey towards the cross. Now, As Pastor Jonathan explained, we're in a new series called Christmas Stories, and we are anchoring this series around two couples. The first couple is Abraham and Sarah, and the second couple is Mary and Joseph. And they lived out this reality of waiting with their lives. Now, there was almost 2,000 years that separated. This is Abraham and Sarah. This is like the beginning of the world. Remember, Pastor Jonathan drew that fence. He's such a great artist. He drew a world right there. we got Abraham and Sarah. 2,000 years go by, and finally we have a couple named Mary and Joseph. But this is the thing. Even though those 2,000 years separated them, their stories were so similar, and they're so intertwined. In fact, we can't really understand what happened with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus until we understand what happened with Abraham and Sarah. We know that they both experienced an unexpected promise of a miracle child that God was going to give them. Abraham and Sarah were given Isaac, and he was a son to end the barrenness in their life. Mary and Joseph, well, they were given the promised Messiah to raise. This would be a savior who would rule and save the world. And so we know that those individual stories, they can't go with each other, and so we're looking at them throughout this series. Now, uh, we're gonna look at two parts of the timeline, though, today. The first part we're gonna look at is right here, kind of like we, we're introduced to Abraham and Sarah. Then there's Isaac. He kind of shows up right here. We're gonna talk about what happened before Isaac arrived. And then we got Mary and Joseph, and Jesus was born there. We're gonna talk about this period, what happened before Mary and Joseph arrived on the scene. And we're gonna ask ourselves, what was it like, for Abraham, for Sarah, for Mary and Joseph to wait with empty arms on a promise that they probably didn't even quite understand themselves. Now, in Genesis 12, God does this miraculous thing in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. He gives them that promise that they are going to have a baby. And at the time that God makes the promise, Abraham is 75 years old, And Sarah is 65 years, certainly a little bit old to be thinking about starting a family even in those days. Here's the reality. Abraham and Sarah were unable to conceive a child on their own. They've likely lived in this state of barrenness for the entirety of their marriage. I imagine that they've lived all these years with the knowledge that they can't have children, that that rawness of their reality has maybe become subdued over time, maybe tolerable. They have likely come to a place of acceptance by this point, though their life may not have been how they once had envisioned it. I would imagine that they've given up some of those dreams, and they've probably come to a place of acceptance and maybe even wholeness. And then God writes a new chapter in their story. God places a call on their lives and promises Abraham something. In Genesis 12, 1-3, it says this. God goes and says to Abraham, I want you to leave your country, your relatives, and your family. I want you to go to the land that I am going to show you. Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and Sarah, and I will make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. That's important. All the families, everybody that walks this earth, will be blessed through through you. See, in that moment, I can imagine that their hearts break wide open with the realization that a great nation actually means a family of their own. A great nation means a baby of their own. Now, God doesn't provide them with many details, though. Instead of telling them where this land is going to be that they're going to head to, God just asks them to follow him, to leave everything that they know, and follow him, and he will do it. And instead of telling Abraham and Sarah how they will have a child, God asks them to trust him and promises that he will do it. And as crazy as this sounds, because let's be honest, if God called me to do that, I might have a little bit of hesitation. Abraham and Sarah, they believe God. They pack everything that they own with such faith, and they head out to follow God and the promises that he has given them. And you almost expect it to happen right away, right? Like, if we were in a Sunday school class right now, we'd probably learn that God promised Abraham and Sarah a child, and then Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, and it was fantastic. And that's kind of how you expect it. Like, the moment they sell everything that they own, the moment they pack up all their treasured possessions, the moment that they say goodbye to their family, step off their land, out of the city that they know, don't you think God is just going to open up the heavens, bless them? well, that's not exactly what happens. In fact, years go by. Years of waiting and clinging to a promise. Years of trusting God that he would do what he said he would do. Decades go by of following God away from home and everyone and everything that they have ever known. You know, I'm sure they must have wondered if they had misunderstood the promise that God I give in to them. My grandmother turned 92 years old this week. Now, she has 11 children. She has countless grandchildren. And I was chatting with her on the phone on her birthday and she loves to talk about the years that she raised her kids. And so we were talking about that, as we often do, on the phone. And she, um, I said to her, I was telling her that I was teaching this weekend and she asked me what I was teaching on and I shared it with her. And I said, Grandma, what would you think if at 65 years old, you had to start thinking about having children. You know what she said to me? Not good, Jessica, not good. You know what, it would have been hard, difficult, excruciating for Abraham and Sarah because it wasn't until Sarah was 90 years old and Abraham was 100 that their promised son, Isaac, was born. See, Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years from the time that God made them the promise to the, child that they, to the day that they held Isaac in their arms. Now, similarly, Mary and Joseph also embarked on a journey where God asked the seemingly impossible from them as well. God asked them to welcome the baby Messiah into their family, even though they were not married yet. I want you to think about that for a second. We have a teenage couple, which in those days they got married in their teenage years. We got a teenage couple engaged to be married, and expected to refrain from sexual activity until their wedding day. Now they find themselves in a bit of a predicament. They have to explain to their community that the baby Mary is carrying is not a mistake, but it's actually miraculous. Imagine what it must have been like for them to go to their parents, to go to the people that they love, and to try and share this with them. Imagine what it must have been like to fully trust God and his promise while also patiently waiting for him to reveal to the whole world what was exactly happening. Now what's very interesting to me is the time frame of when Mary and Joseph showed up in the world history. If we look back at our timeline for a second, we have the world, we have Abraham and Sarah, we have Mary and Joseph. Since this time that's happened between here And here, God has given over 200 prophecies to his people. He's made 200 promises that a Messiah is going to rescue them. So when God gave the promise to Abraham and Sarah, he didn't stop there. Over 200 times in the Old Testament scriptures, he starts telling them details, specific details of what is going to happen when the Messiah comes. Two of the most detailed Verses that they would have known in those 200 prophecies are these ones. The first one is this. It's in Isaiah and it says, and this is from God to his people so that they will know that he is going to send a Messiah. It says, the Lord will give you the sign. A virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, the second one they would have known is out of Bethlehem will come one who will be ruler of all of Israel. And so God's people, they've been waiting. Over 2,000 years, Abraham and Sarah's family, it starts to grow, just as God said it would. We've all sorts of people that have joined their family. Generations have been added. Generations have lived, been born, and have passed away and died. And God has continued to lead his people. This nation that he has created through Abraham and Sarah's family that he now calls Israel, But just before Mary and Joseph, there is a significant time that happens, and it helps us understand what is taking place in the world just before Jesus is born. So we have Abraham and Sarah, we got 200 prophecies happening, we have the nation of Israel being built, and then something happens in this time before Mary and Joseph arrive on the scene and Jesus is born. You see, there has been about 400 years of silence. Now, theologians call this the silent years. And they happen between the Old Testament text and the New Testament text. So when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, often we turn a page and we continue reading. But what happened in history was 400 years went by and God was completely silent. For 400 years, God has not spoken. No new prophets have been raised up. They have not shared anything with God's people. Heaven has gone completely silent as God's people continue to wait for the fulfillment of the promises and the prophecies that he has made to them. See, after centuries of God being in constant communication with his people, that silence would have been deafening. That waiting would have felt excruciating. For about 1,600 years, give or take a few years, God had been in constant communication with his people after giving Abraham and Sarah that promise to bless the whole world. And in that time, over those 200 more prophecies that had come where God was saying, I will come, I will do this for you. Abraham, I'm gonna bless the whole world through you. A virgin is gonna conceive a child and give birth. Your ruler is gonna come from Bethlehem. For almost 1600 years, God has remained faithful and has walked so closely with his chosen people. And then all of a sudden, for 400 years, God goes silent. I wonder, have you ever been in that place? Waiting on a promise that's taking months, taking years, maybe taking decades to become a reality? Have you ever been desperate for an answer? walking through a season of waiting where God seems silent? Have you ever wondered if that season is ever going to end? See, in those moments, the silence can feel overwhelming. The waiting can seem unbearable, maybe borderline even cruel if we're honest. Certainly maybe unnecessary, right? And if we're honest, many of us likely have asked, well, if I can't see God's hand moving, And if I can't hear his voice, how can I be sure that God is even there? Now, I remember the first time I heard about these silent years. I was a young pastor, so I was very idealistic in my ability to completely understand the nature of God and teach it to other people. And so when faced with the fact that God was silent for 400 years seemingly deserting his people, I remember feeling incredibly uncomfortable. I remember thinking his silence seems so cruel. It feels unloving. It felt very disconnected to the God that I knew, who was present, faithful, always with us. See, from my outside, limited perspective, when I couldn't see God's hand moving, or hear his voice, our human tendency is to conclude that he is not present, he is not working, he is not active. But when I've taken some time to study those 400 years, I've discovered that my human knowledge is a bit limited. Now, Pastor Jonathan gave us a math lesson last week, and I thought maybe this week we could do a history lesson. Because during those 400 years, a few notable things happened in the world's history. See, throughout this entire 400 year period, what was happening is Israel was fighting to keep their identity amidst the shifting political powers of the day. See, during those 400 years, there was a few significant moments and a few significant time periods that brought with them some different rulers. And so I want to highlight a few of them for you today. This is not an exhaustive list. You'll see the dot, dot, dot. That's because there's other parts. But the first one I want to look at is the Persian period. Now, Persia is in power when the end of the Old Testament arrives. And so it was somewhere between 430 BC and 334 BC. And so we have the Persian period at the beginning, which ushers in the Greek period. Now, during the Greek period, the Greek time period, Alexander the Great rises in power And he's dominating the world. Now, during his time in power, Alexander was focused on a mission that he was going to spread Greek culture, Greek civilization, and Greek language to unite the world. And this was called Hellenization. And during this time, Alexander and his Greek army, what they do is they establish Greek as the official language, the world's official language. Before, there were so many different dialects, different languages, it meant that communication worldwide was almost completely impossible. But after this time that Alexander was in power, where he established the language, most of the world actually became bilingual, meaning that they could speak in their own language, but they could also speak in the Greek language, which becomes very important in a moment. Next, we have the Egyptian period. This happened somewhere between 323 B.C. and 198 B.C. It's, uh, this is after uh, Alexander the Great's death. And so what happens is his kingdom is split into four parts and given to four of his generals to rule. And so there's this guy named Plotomy, uh, and he ruled over Egypt, and he ruled from Egypt, and he called his, his land the Holy Land, which is very interesting. Now... It's very interesting that during this time of the Egyptian period, what happened was the Old Testament scriptures were officially translated into the Greek language. It had taken several years to do, and it started in the the Greek period. But in the Egyptian period, it officially became that the Old Testament scriptures were translated into Greek. And as a result, scripture became available to every Greek-speaking person, not just the Israelites, God's chosen people. See, because Greek had been introduced in the time of Alexander the Great as the official language of the world, Scripture was now accessible in a way that it never had been before. And after that Egyptian period, there's a few other periods that that happened. I'm not going to get into them. If you're into study, if you're into history, it's fascinating to read about this. But finally, we have the Roman period. Now, the Roman period is ushered in sometime around 34 BC, and the Romans are on a plan to build an empire. So, when they would conquer a city, what they would do is they would go in and they would establish good order to that region. When the Romans would invade, they they actually conquered Jerusalem and they brought order and they brought peace to the land. See, in this time frame, there had not been peace. Sometimes there had, sometimes there had it. It had not been a good time always for the Israelite people. But when the, when the Romans came in and they conquered Jerusalem, they brought peace. They brought order. We see this when they go and call a census, causing Joseph and a very pregnant Mary to have to travel to Bethlehem, to Joseph's hometown, to be counted like everybody else is returning to their homelands. That's because the Romans were a people of order, and they had ushered this in. They were highly administrative. Everything that they did was ordered and systematic. Rome had also established a great system of roads and shipping routes into whatever cities that they conquered. And what they would do is they would put a signpost at the beginning of that city that would tell you how close you were to Rome, which made it very easy for people and trades to move freely amongst the regions. It was a time when people were moving around. It's a time when information was moving around. And by this time, there were also synagogues set up in most of the major cities. This meant that people were able to study the, New Te- the Old Testament scriptures, and because these scriptures were in a universal language, anyone who would have studied them would have been understanding what the prophecies were. They had known which ones had been fulfilled, and more importantly, They knew which ones had not been fulfilled yet. In reality, the whole world was able to know that God had promised to send a rescuer for his people. They knew that the virgin would give birth and that a rescuer would come from Bethlehem. The truth is that there had never been a better time for the entire world to realize that the Savior, the rescuer, the promised Messiah that God had promised to Abraham and Sarah, had arrived. See, the world was weary after 400 years of political changes. God's people, they were weary after 400 years of silence. And a young teenage girl, barely able to recognize the realities of what was happening in the world, was about to deliver the promised Messiah the one who God had promised to bless the whole world through, through Abraham and Sarah's family. See, it may have seemed that God was silent in those 400 years. But the truth was, he was very active. He was lining things up, and he was waiting for the exact time to fulfill his promise to a very weary world. I love Galatians. In Galatians 4, verse 4 to 45, it says this, In the fullness of time, God sent his Son. See, in the fullness of time means that the world was ready for a Messiah. Scripture had been translated into a universal language, which meant that anyone could read it, could understand it, could watch for the fulfillment of a Messiah. There was communication going all throughout the region. So even if you weren't able to read, even if you weren't able to study, There was communication going on because we had a universal language and because there were roads and abilities to travel. There was that common universal language people could share freely about the news of a coming Messiah. Though it may have seemed that God was silent, in reality, he was very much at work. And you know what? The same is true in our lives. In the seasons where it might seem that God is silent, When we struggle to hear his voice or see how he's answering our prayers, he promises that he is working on our behalf. He is moving and active in our lives. He never leaves us. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll always go with you. But the Bible says that his ways are different than our own, and that's the hard thing for us, isn't it? We expect God to do this, and he doesn't do it, and it's frustrating. And the Bible says his timing is different than our own. I'm sure that Abraham and Sarah and Israel waited for 2,000 years thinking this was the time that God should rescue us. Look at all these things we're going through. This should be the time that God sends his Messiah. But God's timing is different than human timing. And while sometimes it might feel like silence, the reality is that he is working out things in our lives for good. See, when we understand what was happening in those 400 years, how active God was in preparing the way for Jesus to arrive on the scene, we can then realize that Jesus came at the exact moment in the exact pocket of time that God had always planned for. Now, in just a moment, we're going to prepare to take communion together. And so if you're online with us, I'm going to encourage you to grab your juice and your cracker. And as we do that, we're gonna remember why God sent his son to the earth. But before we do that, I've asked the band to play a song. And you know what, it's a well-known Christmas song. I'm sure that you've heard it before. But as they sing, I want you to consider what it must have been like after 400 years of silence and after 2,000 years of waiting, (coughs) when finally Jesus arrives. Because with that first cry, of a baby in a manger, this waiting, tired, weary world rejoiced.
0: And as always, take care!